0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Before we start, John, it's December. This is discount December. We're going to give 10% discount on Patreon. And what you get for following us on Patreon is three things. Ad-free podcasts twice a week. You get two macroeconomic courses, not just one, two, free, and also from January, I'm going to be answering questions. Once a fortnight, we're going to have an online macro session. And if you want to go up a level with us, you get a 10% discount for signing up on Patreon right now in December. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators.
2: Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand
0: the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is
0: powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope all is well and you're kind of getting ready for Christmas. Did you see the Christmas tree, John?
3: I did. And the lads are, came up this is and the, delivered it to we, the door, set will, it
0: up. We will talk to the lads in two seconds about the joys of doing podcasts. Are the upside of podcasts, the Christmas tree. Absolutely. Poor old Mac, though, you have, you have a bit of a flu. I, have, I tell you, I got the jab. Yeah. I am so immune now. It's ridiculous. I got the third. I got to tell you, he's he's on the sips. I'm on the lebsips. I got, no, the worst is I got the job and I was yeah. out of sorts for two days. Yeah. And then I've got a cold. So I'm on. <laughs> right? I know, yeah, I can hear yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. apologize in advance the the podcast because. Did,
3: were you on that weekend a number of years ago when it was my brother, Connor and there was a few of the other lads, Cheers and ema Cool and the whole lot. And they were up in Donegal and the pubs had closed and they went back to the place they were staying and all they had was a bottle of vodka and no mixer. I was not on that weekend. Were well, you're not on that weekend. So no they, mixer. They had no mixer and they didn't know what to do except somebody had a packet of Lemsip. No. So they mixed <laughs> up a packet <laughs> of ah, Lemsip. I sip love it, I love it. used as a mixer. And they called the drink a mental breakdown. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of mental breakdowns, I spent, when I wasn't getting vaccinated, Mm. I spent the lion's share of the last week on a, your call is important to us. Oh, yeah. All the lines are busy, Bank of Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Beep, (laughs) beep. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I was waiting for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, the whole thing. Extraordinary. And what I'm intrigued at, all these companies, right? Yeah. Why don't they just employ more people? On, they can't find them. They can't find them because they've paid the minimum wage. That's true, yeah. So people are not working for them. Which is interesting because... But you just think these whole consumer service, like all these, well, what I all say, these companies yeah. dealing with us, the consumer, right, treating you appallingly yeah. all the time. But they should be paying, you know, call centres because they're the front well, line. Like, oh, they, no, first they, of all, like, we're having a chat on this podcast about the terrible service from Bank of Ireland, right? Yeah. Because. Of, and they wouldn't be alone now, in fairness. No, they wouldn't finance. be alone. AIB, every company, right? Yeah. But then I did a little bit of research and they outsource all these, many like many companies outsource these to call centers, right? So it's got nothing to do with the actual company itself, mm. right? And I would, you would have thought, this is incredibly irresponsible management of your brand, even if you are into this sort of carry-on, that you would outsource the first interaction with consumers yeah. to people on the minimum wage, who naturally don't care yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. because they're just doing a gig. It's like a gateway job. They're doing it for a few months, right? And I presume the turnover is enormous in these things because if you're paying the minimum wage, people aren't going to stick around. Yeah. But you think a big brand
3: It is like basic this, stuff. It's, it's one-on-one stuff.
0: Yeah, I it? would have thought like, you know, I know, yeah, you've got to save money and you've got to drive up shareholder value. You've got to make props, yada, yada, yada. All that, we get all that sort of stuff, right? But I would have thought that your first connection with your people your customers mm. through these call centers. It seems to me to make no sense. So you'd be much better off spending three, four, five times the amount on customer care and not having people pissed off.
3: Well, you know, I, I do a lot of other podcasts as right? well. I
0: produce podcasts. Well, by for- the way, John is very promiscuous. He thinks he loves me. He says, I love you, but he does other podcasts. I thought I was special. No, no, no. You're the best, though. I thought I was special. I thought I had all the tricks. <laughs>
3: But they talk about, they talk about customer service a lot and the value of customer service for all the reasons you just said, they are the frontline, they are your first yeah, that's, interaction. That's, that's, yeah, exactly.
0: And
3: and they are the face and the voice of the company. Why Why outsource this? Why, well, not even outsource, I don't mind the outsourcing, but you, you need to have somebody who knows their product, who's passionate about their product and who
0: genuinely wants to help. I'm passionate about overdrafts, as are you. I was thinking (laughs) with the bank, just say just take out more money. Anyway, listen, uh, we are gripe over. We are going to we're going to leave our middle aged men gripe over (laughs) consumer service, customer service, and we're going to talk a little bit about the biggest news maybe of the year, John, which is Russia. Yeah, seems to be on the border Ukraine, China, Taiwan. We've talked about before, and it's. It's an extraordinary shift in geopolitics that nobody really saw coming because the Ukrainian thing seems to have been off the agenda for a while and now it's right back on.
1: That's
3: because well, partly I assume because we in the West only and can only see things through the Western lens because that's the only media and information we get. We're gonna put a stop to that. We
0: are gonna put I will tell you a story. Many years ago, John, I became obsessed. Just after leaving university with all what was going on in Eastern Europe, remember Mm. the whole change? Yeah. And in the summer of 1988, it's a long, long time ago, I went to Czechoslovakia. Nobody ever went. I got a a train, imagine this, from East Berlin Mm. to Prague. And the train went from Warsaw to Berlin to Prague to Budapest to Sofia and to Bucharest. Wow. So it went all around the Soviet bloc. And it was extraordinary because you got on the train and every single communist country was represented in each carriage. But the really... <laughs> no, the really... So you had yeah. the East Germans looked down their nose and the East German yeah. guards... But there was a, an East
3: German carriage?
0: Yes, yes.
3: Oh, right, because, okay. Because at
0: every stage that, that the train lost, a carriage it stopped, right? <laughs> it was amazing. It's very careless. And right. there was... A, and what I always found was the East Germans were so horrible to the poor old Bulgarians. They thought right. the Bulgarians were the worst. Right?
3: Who's last on the line?
0: Bulgarians, right? All right <laughs> they, so, so it was just
3: one
1: carriage full of
0: Bulgarians. Right? pulled into the station. <laughs> but it was extraordinary. It was like it was like this communist express all the way through. And Germany in the summer. So the Prague Spring is the twentieth of August, the anniversary of Prague Spring. Mm. And I wanted to go to Czechoslovakia because I've been told the Prague was beautiful. But I'd, heard, I'd never knew anything about it at that stage. This was before the stag parties sure. and everybody else, yeah, right? Yeah. But I'd been told it was beautiful. So I said, fine, I was living in Belgium. So I got the train to Belgium, to Berlin, blah, blah, blah. And what was amazing was the train, Central Europe is so hot in the summer. Like Germany gets so, so hot in the summer. And the train was kind of Deutsches Reichsbank, was the name of the, the, the train company, the East German train company. It was really old. And I went through Dresden, right? This was 40 years after the Second World War. Mm. And most of Dresden was never rebuilt by the communists. They had no money. So Dresden was still crumbling. Oh, really right. Weird. Okay. Then you arrive into Prague. And I got up out of the train station in Prague, down to Wencesloff Square, and there was a tiny demonstration. And from about four or five streets, cops came. And mm. I've never seen people being beaten up like this. They let out Alsatians, they beat the lumps out of people and of course I said okay time to leave Mm. and I went into a little bar and interesting one of the guys at the bar said to me uh, you know where are you from Ireland what are you doing here because there was no tourists there at all Mm. and I said I just saw that demonstration and I said it was really vicious he said yeah yeah he said uh, how many people were there I'd say about 200 maybe 300 and he said yeah 300 yeah he says 100 are actually demonstrators and 200 are agents of the state pretending to demonstrate to catch them out Oh, really? And this is how they operated. And this was 88, and they said, this regime will never, ever end in Czechoslovakia. And within 18 months, it was gone. <laughs> so it's interesting that these regimes... Like, and, you know, when you think about... And the reason I'm going to talk about it is if the Russians invade Ukraine... Yes. They're going to do what they did in the Prague Spring. So they'll invade, they'll put their own people in power, and you'll have a proxy Russian state there for the next twenty or maybe fifteen years, which would be an extraordinary thing. Because now I thought that was it's all part over. Part of
3: Putin's grand plan.
0: Yeah, and you think that's all over, but it's not. Mm. Anyway, let's go and talk to Gideon Rachman from the FT about what's going on in Russia. Before we do, there are two uh, the two fellas, the out here, <laughs>
3: there's, what, there's who, two young fellas who here. Look these guys.
0: There's two young fellas, Damien Mooney and Owen Cronin, and they have brought a Christmas tree. Ah, well then. This time last year, I got a, I think it was a text out of the blue, from a young man called Damien Mooney and his mate, Owen Cronin, who are listeners to the podcast. And we were chatting about something. They said, would you like a Christmas tree?
3: Just out of the blue. Out of the blue.
0: And I said I would. (laughs) And they are now here again. The Christmas tree delivers Owen. And Damien, how are you, lads? Good. How are you? Very good. Glad to be here. On a Saturday morning, waking up, bing bong, two lads with a Christmas tree.
2: What's the story? How are you? Let's you feeling a little bit ropey, you're were saying? We're good, yeah. We're a little bit ropey this morning. Um it's silly season, silly season's begun already. But um we're here, the Christmas tree's up, it's it's looking good. And uh yeah, two two country lads getting a day out in done you know, what's not to love. And <laughs> tell us, so you guys were
0: were you economic students at one stage?
2: So I went to uh, UL in Limerick. i did international business down there, and Owen went to UCC and mm-hmm. um, studied engineering, and we both met at a jolly up in Budapest when we were in first year. A jolly up! A jolly up! Um, a, a, our first lads' holiday. We were the only two cultures in it, and uh, we t- we just hit it off from there.
0: And 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 so you were listening to the podcast. How, how did we get? I can't remember. How did we get in
2: contact? I actually messaged you on Patreon. So yes, that's what it was. I was doing an interview for a job at time. I basically wanted to say that I was good at making contacts. So I decided I'd make a contact there and then just to have it for the interview. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get the job after. Because
0: you said, my contact Dave McWilliams. You said we're not having him.
2: Yeah, exactly. Straight red flag. Um, and yeah, I. it's something that has come in useful in the past this time of year that, you know, at least if you offer something and everyone puts up a Christmas tree in their house. So I just said, listen, if you... Have a quick phone call with me. I'll, I'll run you up a tree, and here we are. That's what two, it was. Two years yeah, later. If, it's, that's
0: right. That's right. So Damien was doing an interview, contacted me in Patreon, said, "Listen, I've got to spoof properly," and he yeah. said, "You're a good spoofer." So <laughs> I said, "I'll take a coffee I'll explain <laughs> your skills and you. talent at <laughs> spoofing, exactly. Widely known, I'm widely known, widely appreciated." <laughs> and he didn't get the job. Yeah. Well, and I got a Christmas tree. <laughs> so who's
3: winning? Here we are. <laughs> Tell us about the Christmas trees. You have a. A Christmas tree
2: farm is it down in? Well, I, I don't have it yet. Um, I'll probably have it like when the parents uh go on, but um, yeah, no, my dad and my uncle set it up uh, god, nearly 40 years ago now. They got the farm off my grandfather, it was just a you know open fields. Uh, he was a beef farmer, and they were like, nah, we're not having cows getting stuck in ditches and, <laughs> and all that crack that goes with it. So, the great thing about Christmas trees is they don't run away, they just they tend to stay where, where you put them. And yeah, like there's, there must be a hundred Christmas tree farms in in Ireland. We actually had the AGM at our farm um, a few months ago. Um, Owen drove all the way up from yeah, Clarity. Yeah, come to see us, all the Christmas tree farmers. Um, we call ourselves the Association of Christmas Tree Growers. But yeah, Owen's Owen's mates were all going golfing, and Owen said, "No." What I'm, branch I'm not- are you in? Um, oh god Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's like this all the time
0: I've <laughs> put up with this
2: <laughs> it's good to think he's good at his job man <laughs> no he's good
0: Well, listen we will leave it there but it's great Christmas we'll see you this time next year lads please god that's Owen and Damon from the Christmas Tree and Association best of luck lads
3: excellent happy Christmas to you Mac take me back Christmas is all about red and all that kind of stuff red <laughs> Russia
0: red Russia and China yeah but We're going to go to Gideon Rachman is the foreign correspondent of the FT, one of the greatest thinkers about international relations that there is out there. Great writer, all around good egg, and he's going to explain what's going on. He's on the line now. So it's Gideon Rachman from the FT. Gideon, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, oh,
4: well, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm in flying form, flying form. Well, I'm actually not because I got the booster yesterday, so I'm a little bit down. John's a bit worried about my <laughs> sort of generally clogged up sound. I'm always worried about you, Mike. But I'm here. I'm full of paracetamol. All is good. Gideon, let's good, get good. straight to the issue. Russia, Putin, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to start? Where do we start? What's going on there?
4: Well, if we only knew, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Possibly Putin knows, but certainly in the West, it's a guessing game. Uh, what, we, what we do know is that there's a buildup of 90,000 troops already on the Ukrainian border. The Americans are talking about them being able to mobilize 175,000 quite quickly. And there being an actual plan in place to invade in, in, in the early part of next year. Whether Putin literally pulls the trigger and does invade is the question for now. And what his motivation would be is also, you know, an interesting issue. But um, I think it is a, it's is—it's kind of a major international crisis, which has has slightly crept up on
0: yeah, us. Yeah, it's kind of crept up. I thought it was kind of like, I was aware of Donbass and obviously Crimea, but it
4: seemed yeah, to go it's go off. it's of rumbling away.
0: Rumbling away, and it's over there. But uh, this idea, and I actually read it in the FT last weekend, where it said, uh, actually, the Americans think the Russians are going to invade in, in the first quarter it was very specific so explain to me why now what's been going
4: on well firstly one of the reasons that that putin's threats of violence are credible is he's done it before so you know the guy's been in power now for 20 years 2008 they attacked georgia and essentially dislodged south Ossetia and so on 2014 there's another war um this time uh, with Ukraine and they annex Crimea. So he has shown, and indeed, when he came to power, there was the war in Chechnya and the leveling of Grozny. This is a guy, a rare world leader who regularly resorts to the use of force. So, and I, it's I suppose not- in Syria as
0: well, he was not uh, indeed he was not unashamed really of anything they were doing there.
4: No, 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 and they're still there. Um, and who feels that his previous operations have worked for him? You know that they helped him domestically. He's never been as popular in Russia as in 2014 after the. Annexation of Crimea, and he hasn't paid an unacceptable international price. You know, after the Crimean annexation, there were sanctions. There's, it's inconvenient for the Russians, no doubt about it. But you know, the Russia World Cup went ahead. He's still in international society, and then I think he will look at the United States and say they've just been through the Trump presidency. Biden's an old guy. They've just pulled out of Afghanistan. Are they really gonna put up a fight? No. So then why why might he want to do something now? I mean, I've talked about the domestic reasons. Yeah. But there is this sort of deep sense of grievance that Putin expresses quite regularly about Ukraine. There's, I mean, if you can face it, there's like a five thousand-word essay he wrote on the subject in well, July. I, I was
0: reading your you were writing about that the other day, the, the the big tome. He published it what last summer was it?
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a it's a sort of, you know, it's a historically-based polemic, really. But the underlying logic of it is that Ukrainian independence should never have happened, that Ukraine and Russia are as one, that uh, a series of mistakes by leaders in Moscow, including the leaders of the Soviet Union, and then sort of Western duplicity and Ukrainian neo-fascism has led us to this terrible pass. At one point, he makes a sort of pro forma, oh, okay, things change, you can be independent. But then he comes back and says, but you, know, you are being used as a springboard against Russia. Uh, the West is supplying you with weapons, that you want to join NATO, this is all unacceptable. And the Russians in the context of Ukraine, but more generally have been asking or demanding uh, for some years that there should be a new security order agreed with Russia. The West has not been willing to have that conversation, but maybe under pressure biden is beginning to open the door to that a little uh, he talked uh, after speaking to putin on wednesday he said that there was going to be talk about a new uh, arrangements in europe so putin may be beginning to get that dialogue that he wants the question then is will that be enough you know firstly will he ask for things the west is prepared to give such as saying yeah ukraine will never join nato well People may feel uncomfortable about saying that, but as a matter of fact, Ukraine is miles from joining NATO anyway, so in a way it's not that difficult a thing to say. But then the worry is, okay, you do that and then he'll be back in a few years' time because ultimately he doesn't really accept Ukraine as an independent state.
0: Now, let's look at it from the Russian side. Before I kind of do my sedate in German, you know, at some stage Mm. somebody's got to stand up to this geezer, okay? But Mm. let's, from the Russian side, if you're you're sitting there in Russia and you see, look, you know, the Baltic states are in NATO. We've been surrounded by aggressors. We were actually the country that was that collapsed, and you are the aggressors. Uh, there was a there was a period when our border was actually at the Volkswagen plant in West Germany. Many mm. not that long ago, it's it's in living memory. Our border sure. with the West now our border is in Belarus. Our border is in Ukraine, it's in Kiev, and mm-hmm. you guys are aggressing against us. Mm. Well, what, what, what do you say to that Russian idea?
4: Well, I, you know, I would say it's one way of looking at history and not my way. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, okay. I think it's, yeah. it's sincerely held amongst many of them. And there, there is a sort of sense that Russia was taken advantage of, and that some of this was self-inflicted, even Putin will say, "Well, we you know mismanage things and so on, but the Russians will say, "Yes, but you know the West promised that NATO that these states would not be taken into NATO, and then they were, and there's quite a lot of evidence for the fact that those promises were made now the Western response is, "Yeah, but you know situations change, and these countries asked to join NATO." And as you know, it's a NATO is a defensive alliance. It's not going to attack Russia. So that's how we see it. But they would say, "Well, we did see NATO go to war in Kosovo." You know, and in fact, one Russian once said to me, "This was a long time ago, but it stuck in my head." You know, he said, "You know, you bombed okay, you bombed the Yugoslavs, or NATO bombed the Yugoslavs yeah. or the Serbs because they committed human rights abuses." But we commit human rights abuses in Chechnya. So if you can bomb Belgrade for, for them committing human rights abuses, why, in theory, couldn't you bomb Moscow? So um, the precedence is uh, there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think that's paranoid. And I also think it ignores the extent to which Russia was an aggressor. You know that Their view of world history sort of stops at 1945. You know, Napoleon invaded, Hitler invaded. But then actually, you know, Russia moved into, uh, as you say, all the way up to the Volkswagen plant in, in West Germany to the Berlin Wall. And, you know, there was no real, although the Russians would say the Warsaw Pact-NATO equivalents, the difference is that the countries that joined NATO did so voluntarily. I mean, the countries in the Warsaw Pact were essentially controlled by the Soviet Union um, against their will and got out of it as soon as they could.
0: So now that we're mentioning the Soviet and the Warsaw Pact, I mean, are we talking... Potentially dub Czechoslovakia in 1968. Is that where we're at? Is that what this could look like? If
1: yeah, if it, mistakes it, are made, it went
4: really, really uh, wrong. Sure. I mean th- that you know I think that th- most people think the Ukrainian army, if the Russians went for a full-on onslaught, would not uh, would not be able to hold them back, and they they could get to Kiev if they wanted to. And they would come up with some phony justification, and they'd put put their guy in charge. Ukraine might stay nominally independent state, but it would essentially be under Moscow's tutelage uh, and control. That's possible. The question is, Biden has said, you know, you will pay an unacceptable economic price for that. How much more is that we can do to the Russians and and how much pain are they prepared to suffer? I mean, I think you can probably, you know, for example, make it impossible for them to have interactions with the Western financial system. You can't transfer money in and out of Russia. That wasn't a big threat when you're the Soviet Union, but Russia's quite integrated into the global economy now. They won't be able to sell their bonds overseas. You know, you can create real chaos there. But uh, equally, they have a weapon, which is that Germany is dependent on Russian gas supplies.
0: Exactly, Um, and and, and much more independent. Yeah, and going into into the winter. winter, Yeah so so let's so let's say so the Russian side they have this we can turn on and off the heat right mm-hmm. which is real and it's material the mm-hmm. western side is we can punish you in bond markets we can punish you by economic sanctions we can make you a pariah state more pariah than you feel you are and you say and and of course he has he has form he's done this before and he's got away with it to what extent do you think this is this is a sort of a, an appeasement playing out and it's not really appeasement it's just the West's cards are the hand is not particularly a good one.
4: No, because we know Biden's more or less said we're not going to fight. And, and you know, I think most people would agree with him that we don't want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine or anything else. And indeed, if you look back to the Cold War presence, you mentioned Czechoslovakia, 68, Hungary, 56. We didn't go to war then either. 21 years after Czechoslovakia, 60, 68 the Soviet Union collapses anyway, or the Soviet system collapses anyway. So there is an argument for playing a long game, you know, and and we don't have a a very strong hand. And I think, you know, we may come on to this. This is, at the moment, the most severe bit of a series of global challenges to American power, some in China, some in the Middle East. And the fact that America is being challenged right across the globe Makes it harder for them to respond, and and, and um, also
0: also might say at the same time that's the at
4: the same time exactly. So and let's
0: the, let's talk about the challenges to America in China, in Taiwan. Where where you see it? I mean, when I'm reading you, you're always traveling around. You're always talking to people. Oh, by the way, just for you you've met Putin, haven't you?
4: Yeah, but not for a while. Yeah, no, I I met him. Um, God, can I say it at the World Economic Forum in Davos? So they you they, can they had a um, a little um, kind of meeting for about. 10, 15 journalists and and Putin. Uh, It was not very grand. I mean, I've been inside the Kremlin not to see him. And those, you know, obviously that is an imperial setting. Uh, This was just the back room of a kind of three-star hotel in Davos. And he sat there answering questions for quite a while, fairly patiently. He's a smart, if unsmiling person. But the, the bit that I particularly remember was at a certain point, I can't even remember what it was. Some American journalist asked him something he didn't like. And, you know, rather than answer the question, he said, well, that's a very good question. But before I answer it, could I ask you why you're wearing that extraordinary ring on your finger? And Mm. then he sort of looked at this guy. This guy had a big sort of ring on his finger. And then Putin, sort of everyone laughs a bit nervously. And then Putin says, oh, surely you don't mind me asking. You wouldn't be wearing something like that unless you were deliberately trying to draw attention to yourself. Um, and so he basically kind of tortures this guy uh, in public, and, and everyone forgets what the question is. He humiliates the questioner. It was a very kind of memorable, slightly creepy performance because it was you felt you were like watching an intelligence officer turn the tables on some poor world. guy. Yeah, exactly.
0: So tell me about China. What do you think is the likely pathway? Taiwan, Xi Jinping, the whole change in
4: China. Well, I mean, China is going through a a very weird phase at the moment for a number of reasons. And, you know, you kind of travel all the time and I do, but obviously we've been traveling less because of COVID. And God knows when I'll ever get back to China. I mean, I used to go once a year, but it, it's they have d- adopted this zero COVID policy, which means that they're keeping up their quarantines from the rest of the world in a way that really no other big place is, and really nobody. So if you want to go to China now, you have to Quarantine very strictly in a hotel for three weeks, four weeks, if you want to go into Beijing, which means people aren't going yeah. because you've got to essentially commit to half a year to make that worthwhile. And similarly, the Chinese aren't leaving. So Xi Jinping has not met a foreign leader in person since March 2020 when he met the leader of Pakistan in Beijing. You will have noticed he didn't go to the climate summit, he didn't go to the UN, he didn't go to the G20 summit. He's become kind of recluse. And I, I don't think that is particularly good <laughs> for, you know, a country that is huge and quite, like all big countries, very focused on itself. One slightly worries that they kind of lose touch, that they become prey to their own propaganda, which is very, very intense, because the other thing that's happening is that she is installing himself essentially as leader for life. Uh, you know, after Mao, the Chinese tried to move away from that. Deng Xiaoping introduced term limits for presidencies, and it worked for a while. You had, um, Jiang Zemin did two terms, Hu Jintao did two terms. The collective party seemed to be in charge rather than a single individual. And then Xi comes in and essentially sort of restores aspects of Maoism. He starts uh, writing Xi Jinping thought into the Chinese constitution. They scrap term limits. Uh, Now, you know, everybody has to study Xi Jinping thought. Last time I was there, you know, I was with a very kind of, one of the rich Chinese guy, but he's also a party member. And so I sort of slightly teased him and said, you know, come on, you don't really study this stuff, do you? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I've got the Xi Jinping Thought app on my phone. And he no pulls way. It up and he said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's and they're meant to study an hour a day. And he said, oh, God, it shows I haven't logged in today. You know, pff, you know. Um, wow. That's bad. It's, it's <laughs> That's really it's bad. It's crazy, yeah. Um, And so you've got a one-party kind of cultural personality being installed, a one-person cultural personality, a society that's cut off. And that is increasingly, to come to your original point about Taiwan, ferociously focused on the idea of reunification with Taiwan. In other words, just invading the place and conquering it.
0: And now that the Americans are compromised in Europe and all eyes are on Putin, do you think that there could be that disaster for the United States that both Russia and China move at the same time.
4: Well, funnily enough, that's what I'm writing my column about next week. Um, <laughs> and indeed, uh, there's, a, there's a third crisis, which um, uh, you know I, I should also include, although Russia and China the two major locusts, but actually there's a crisis building with Iran as well. I mean, if you look at what the uh, Americans have been saying, the Iranians are getting very close to, once again, to having enough fissile material to make a bomb. So there's something going on in the Middle East as well, um, which Blinken has said is, you know, can't go on for many more weeks. But but yeah, Russia and China, I mean, you know, I talked to various kind of people in my sort of geopolitical world about, you know, do you think they're actually coordinating? And the view tends to be not in the sense of like, you know, secret communications and phone calls saying, you do this on Monday, I'll do this on yeah. Tuesday. That's not inconceivable. It's probably unlikely. But I think that they have a shared view. They have a shared problem, which is that there is territory that they want to annex. They have both taken notice of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and incorporated it into a kind of rhetoric of American weakness. And they're both watching each other and watching, okay, what what will America do in Ukraine? What will America do in Taiwan? What will America's allies do? is this the moment now to um, to move? Because the US won't react. And if they were to get away with it, both of them at the same time, then we're really in a, a new world. That sort of Pax Americana is over. Gideon, back
3: in 2018, 2019, didn't China and Russia have kind of military maneuvers, joint military maneuvers and kind of war games Kind of yeah, prepping they have. for uh, this.
4: They've done that. And also, more recently, there were big Russian Chinese naval exercises in the Western Pacific. But, you know, they would say, well, you guys do that sort of thing as well. You know, NATO has war games. And indeed, there were very large naval exercises. Last time I was in Washington, which was in October, the Americans were slightly crowing because they had said that they had conducted the biggest naval exercises in the Western Pacific in 40 years involving the Japanese, the Australians, the Americans, the British, the French. Everybody's flexing their muscles right now.
0: So let's just before we go get in, let's look at that scenario where either coordinated or opportunistically, you have mm. two big powers with a mutual interest, which is to ter- annex territory and kind of humiliate America as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that, you know, at, at the end of the day, they want America to look weak. They want America to be weak. Mm. Do you think this is a, is a possibility?
4: Yeah. I would think it's probably more likely at the moment that in, over the coming year, the Russians will do something than the Chinese will do something. That's partly because, uh, you know, simply responding to what's actually happening, you don't see quite the same military build-up with Taiwan. There's a, a huge number of Chinese incursions into Taiwanese airspace and uh, forcing the Taiwanese air force to scramble and that kind of thing. But, you know... Invading across a stretch of water is much more complicated than just rolling your tanks over a border. So it's easier to do Ukraine than it is to do Taiwan. Also, China has been much more cautious militarily. They had a little clash with the Indian army on their border last summer. Um, some people killed, but not. it was more like a kind of you know, overflowing of tensions rather than a deliberate yep. land grab of the Sort that we've discussed that Putin's done in the past. They haven't fought a war really since they had a war with Vietnam in 1979. They've had a huge military build-up that since then. There's a lot of nationalism around. There's a military that's keen to kind of show its mettle Yeah, to so show its stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, a seaborne invasion over a stretch of water which is, I think, three times the stretch you had to cross during D-Day, even to do a, you know, Take over an island of 27 million people, which is tiny compared to 1.4 billion people. And uh, uh, it would be, a, you know, they'd lose people, they'd lose ships. And they would also, I think, they have to think about let's, okay, in the best case scenario, America doesn't respond. But then America, even if they're not in a war with America, globalization's over at that point. I can't imagine, you know, trade as normal. You know, there, there would be complete economic sanctions on China, it would be economic chaos. Do they are they prepared for that? Do they want that? They're the world's largest manufacturer, the world's largest exporter. They ready to, to find Western markets closed to them? I don't know, maybe.
0: Well, I mean, we'll leave it there, but I mean you would think that all logic would say, don't do that. Right, all logic.
4: Yeah, well, Isn't that,
0: wasn't that the great book that was written in 1913 or something that said, you know, there won't be a war in Europe because economically we're far too integrated. The yeah, Germans it was Norman
4: Angel's The Great Illusion. Yeah, yeah absolutely. and the Germans
0: yeah. and the Brits and the French. And we all, we all really, yeah, we might like each other, but frankly, we're all far too economically intertwined to do anything as stupid as attack That's each other that. and it happened.
4: Absolutely. And in fact, now we're swapping great books. There's the one I've just I was reading and then I've lost, so I just reordered it. But there's a really good book by a guy called Ian Kershaw, who is famous as a historian of Hitler, but it was called um uh I think Fateful Moments or something like that. But it's about a study of nineteen thirty-nine to forty-one and the decisions that were made in Berlin, Tokyo, etc., about invading Russia, about Pearl Harbor, etc. cetera. but the chat on Japan is particularly interesting because you know, the Japanese war-gamed Pearl Harbor internally in the Imperial Cabinet for a very long time. And a lot of people were saying internally in Tokyo, this would be crazy. You know, we'll lose this war if we do this. But they still did it. You know, people can do very, very irrational things. They talk themselves into a situation where, for whatever reason, they they feel they have no option or this is the best option and, or and are they, they construct
0: a, a fantastical situation where they might possibly win, even though absolutely. probabilistically it's almost zero, but they construct yeah. that and they go through that little gap in the door, you know, and that, yeah, that's the absolutely. weird thing that happened. Gideon, we yeah. will leave it there. It's obviously a pre-Christmas chill that has come <laughs> yeah, into the more. podcast studio, the, the basement, the, uh, the, the HQ, the podcast, but no fascinating stuff. And isn't it amazing just how quickly these things can change? You know, who was talking last summer? about either of these things, really?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, let's hope uh, in six months' time we'll, we'll forget we ever had this conversation because the world will have moved on and it'll all have been a scare. But uh, we'll, we'll see.
0: Gideon, thank you so much for taking the call. Good to talk to you.
4: Take care. Nice to talk to you, David.
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
0: you know, Mac? You have a very solemn face on you now, John, after that interview. Way back
3: when, when I was working in World Service, George W. Bush, now he wasn't the sharpest tool in the kit. Dubya. But he said once that, I looked into Putin's eyes and I saw his soul, (laughs) which kind of meant nothing because he didn't get him at all. He didn't
0: get him at all. He didn't get him at all. But also, it's not just Dubya, Barack Obama said about Putin, dismissed Putin and said he's not a chess player. And I said, I felt like saying, ah, here, that's exactly what he is. Yeah, that's exactly what he is.
3: Well, that story about the ring. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I could imagine that happening. I could envisage that happening. And as
0: you said, it's it's a trained agent turning the tables Mm. and deflecting completely.
3: And and focusing in on a little detail.
0: Yeah. But what comes across from that conversation, and, you know, we've been having the conversation ourselves, is just how fragile the West's hand is in the face of of Russia and China, but particularly Russia, particularly Russia because, you know, you impose sanctions, yeah, they work. Russia's been under sanctions since Crimea, Mickey Mouse sanctions. And maybe you do it full on, but there's also this playbook that you can see Putin playing, which is the following. Putin knows that Biden's out in two years, right? He probably has a fairly good handle that the Democrats might lose in two years. Mm, then he Jesus. might have a Republican, a Trump, or a kind of a wannabe Trump. Okay? Oh yeah, yeah. Whose view on foreign policy is informed by big, big boys, tough guys, you know, right? And Putin's thinking to himself, I can brazen this out for two years. Then we've been new president. Then he's going to do a deal with me because he can't go in to four years of presidency with Russia being shut out, invading half of Ukraine and all of Europe petrified every winter that they'll turn on and off the gas. Yeah. I mean, he does two years and then he's like, okay, then there's a clean slate. We negotiate again. But I wonder, would he even bother waiting the two years? Because Biden... No, I'm saying do something now. Yes. Take two years of being frozen out by Biden. Yeah. Knowing full well the chance of Biden winning or, or the Democrats winning are you know, 50-50. Yeah. You'll get a, a mini Trump coming back in there. You say to them, okay, the first thing you got to do is have a summit with Russia. What are you going to do? Yeah. And then they already own Ukraine.
3: Yeah. And what, what what strikes me is is the fact that it's the Russia-China...
0: At the same time, idea ...at the same
3: time, and who are talking. And that's why I was asking Gideon about these manoeuvres. And not only that, but their trade ties are, are much closer now as well. So it is the prime time to do something. They have Lukashenko manning the border there with Poland and just shoving people at the bottom, just building up the pressure. Yeah, uh, they have China building up the pressure on Taiwan. They have Putin with his hand, as you say, on the gas and, knob, and, and, and
0: knowing knowing that he'll be very popular at home if he invades yeah. Ukraine. Absolutely. You know, that, that, and then also,
3: you know, Trump has left America as a laughing stock, a, a divided. Certainly
0: in this basement. Yes, <laughs> but, then but maybe it's high time to short the market, John.
3: Oh, go on, talk to me.
0: Well, if all this is, if, even if there's a risk of all this, right? The attendant risk is therefore that global financial markets unbelievably overvalued, right? Yeah. All dependent on the Fed cutting interest rates. All that all that sort of stuff about COVID and cutting interest rates and tapering and bond markets, that'll all count for shite if Russia invades Ukraine. Yeah. There'll be a dramatic fall off because first thing was the price of oil will go through the roof because there'll be sanctions on Russian oil. Right. And Russia produces a hell of a lot of oil, yeah. so there'll be a, certainly mm-hmm. a glut. right? Then the Saudi Arabians will have to produce much more oil to bring the price down, but they've got an interest in the price being up because it makes them rich, yes. right?
3: yeah.
0: And they're trying to manoeuvre away from oil into all sorts of notions of being the great leaders in there, so they might not necessarily come to our aid straight away. Right. Okay, if you think yeah. it, the Chinese are then given a green light to even if they don't attack Taiwan, it's on the agenda. Yes. Completely. It won't go yeah. off the agenda from then on because Ukraine will be, look like a proxy Taiwan. Financial markets will collapse all over. I mean, there'll be a huge shock to the system. Globalization is over. Supply chains, there's no more. Yeah. Free nation. I mean, it. this is, this is, and I come back, we probably end here. The extraordinary thing about the First World War was that the stock markets? You know the way everyone says, "Oh, don't worry, stock markets, financial markets, and economists—they're always one step ahead. They think ahead, mm, they discount yeah. risk, etc." The First World War started on the third of August. European stock markets were open on the second, trading buoyantly. Right. Nobody forecasted. Everyone thought, you know, as I said, far too many links to so be a 11th hour deal, the Germans will back down, the Serbs will back down, the Austrians will back down against the Serbs, the Russians don't want to get involved, the French aren't prepared, the Brits clearly don't want a war in Europe because they've got their empire. All these logical, rational ideas will come to the fore. And by Christmas, they were all bogged down in the Western Front, in the Eastern Front, in Turkey, and we had a four-year war. We're thinking about it. Jesus. There goes John. Jesus. Talk to you Thursday. John, it's Crimbo. It is. Here's the sales pitch. You can get, can you imagine anything better than this? <laughs> you can get 12 months Patreon subscription to the Dave McQueen's podcast, which is two podcasts ad-free every week. You get two macroeconomic courses. The economic courses I give in Trinity more or less online which are humdingers which are humdingers okay which we actually won a prize indeed we won a prize swaty teacher of the year but we get all the reading lists you know the reading lists i go on about all the reading lists the lecture notes videos the whole thing and you get these we're going to introduce this year an online q a once a fortnight i'm going to answer the questions that people have this is all on patreon that's,
3: that's really good
0: Yeah, no, it will be really good and it'll it'll create a a huge community of people. This is all on Patreon and you get a 10% discount if you sign up in December. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And if you sign up now to Patreon, you get 12 months for the price of 11 months per annual subscription and or you can look at it by getting 10% off for the whole thing. And the key thing is it's not just a podcast. It's the learning, it's the community, it's the engagement. It's all together. We're going to go up a level in 2022. Do you know what as well? It's a
3: bloody brilliant Christmas present.
0: You're absolutely right.